you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to Genesis chapter 43. We're going to look this morning, chapter 43, 44, 45. We're going to be here a while. But it'll go fast. So, in 2003, there's a guy, his name's Aaron Ralston. He was, uh, he's a backpacker, a mountain biker, a hiker. Um, he likes to, uh, he likes to go and climb canyons, and so he was out in Utah, and he was canyoning by himself, and as he was uh, working his way, climbing through a canyon, he slipped and he fell, and he found his arm lodged in between a giant boulder and the wall of the canyon. You may remember his story, it's, um, you can watch the movie if you've got the stomach for it, the title of it is 127 Hours. He was caught in that canyon, and um, it's a one in a zillion kind of a ordeal. But there he was. He could not free his arm, no matter what he did. In fact, the more he moved it, the more he worked it, the worse it became. And so 12 hours gave way to 24 hours, gave way to 36 hours, gave way to 48 hours, and the time kept slipping on. The third day... Aaron, realizing that he was not going to make it if he didn't do something, began to think of his options. And he realized that God had provided for him in a very difficult way. He hadn't sent a rescue team to rescue him. He hadn't sent a helicopter crew to rope down into the canyon Instead, what he had was a dull pocket knife. And with that dull pocket knife, Aaron began the process of cutting his arm away from the rock. It took him two days. He tied off his arm and he began the process. After those two days, after he made his way out, he had to hike six miles before he ran into a rescue team that was looking for him. He made his way back. The group that initially surrounded him was partly his old youth group from his church, in the Methodist church. Aaron had a relationship with the Lord, and it wasn't until all of this and making his way clear that he realized that even though he had lost his arm, God had provided for him. There's a sub-theme that runs all the way through the book of Genesis. It runs all the way through the Bible, but we're specifically in the book of Genesis. It's not necessarily the sub-theme. It is the theme of the Bible, and it's this, that God will provide. It shows up very early in the book of Genesis. You'll remember when we looked at this in Genesis chapter 3, that um, in the midst of the curses, there was a promise. In the midst of all of that, the scene was set for a promise that God would provide 
for man's sin. And so we read this in Genesis 3.15. God said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there in the very beginning of the book of, you know, the, the first book of the Bible, God provides this outlet, this promise in which he tells the serpent, I'm going to provide one, a seed of the woman. And then he goes to this individual. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And of course, theologians have down through the ages seen that as what we call the proto-euangelion, the, the initial gospel, the first gospel. But that begins this thread that runs all the way through the Bible of God providing in situations in which all appears lost, in which everything seems to be hopeless. If you look the passages that we've already talked about, the life of Abraham and Sarah, God comes, he opens her womb in her very old age. The story, obviously, of Abraham and Isaac as they made their way up on the mountain. There is the story and there is the, the provision that God makes there as a sacrifice is provided in place of Isaac. In Jacob's life, it was God moving to reveal himself in a dream to Jacob on the run. At, at odds with his brother Esau, things in very desperate straits for him. And yet God showed him in a dream, I will provide. I am your God. And you'll remember he gave him the dream of what we call Jacob's ladder which was really a stairway in which God himself stood at the top and the angels were ascending and descending. And God was saying to Jacob, I am your God. Of course, we saw it in the softening of Esau's heart as he came to meet Jacob making a way for two brothers who had been at, at odds with one another somehow to now be at peace, the opening of Rachel's womb. It was in the dreams given to Joseph, on and on in the book of Genesis. The theme of God providing is heavy and thick. It, it, it's ever-present with us. It will continue on through the rest of the books of the Bible, because that is what God is doing. One of the names that's given to God in Genesis chapter uh, in, in Genesis, is found in Genesis 22. It's in that story of Abraham and Isaac. And, and they've gone up, and, and the passage picks up. It says, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14, so Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. So it's no surprise when we come to Genesis 42, 43, 44, 45, when we come to the story of Joseph, a story that has slowed way down, that we see embedded in this story the same thread, that God will provide 
So let's look at just kind of flying high above the story. Let's look at this part of the of the story. The famine was severe. We remember last week that Joseph's brothers, Jacob's sons, had gone up on Jacob's initiation. They went up and they got the grain from Joseph. Joseph didn't reveal himself to them, and and then they left and they went they went back. And you'll remember that Joseph worked a test into this whole thing. He wants to know what are what are these brothers made up. Now, what are they like? Have they changed? Has there been any movement in their lives? And so you'll remember that he put silver. He put the silver they used to buy the grain back in their bags. And the reason that he did that was he wanted to see, would they take the money and run? Would they leave him with the grain and the money, leaving their brother Simeon to rot in that Egyptian prison? Or would they do as they said that they would and come back for him? And so he put that money in their bags to test their mettle, to see who they were. And so they went off, they went back, and they told their father everything that happened. The story slows down. You get the sense that some period of time passes, a good little period. And then at the beginning of verse 43, we find out that the famine was still severe in the land. They'd eaten all the grain that they had brought from Egypt. Their father said, go back and buy a little more for us. The problem is that they can't go back to Egypt without taking Benjamin. As remember, Joseph wants to see Benjamin. It's another part of the test. He wants to know, is Benjamin alive Because Benjamin was the other full son, brother, that was born to Rachel. The other favorite, if you will. And so he wants to know, have the brothers treated Benjamin the way they treated him? Is he dead? Did they throw him in a pit somewhere and sell him as a slave? Is he dead or is he alive? And of course, they've said that he's alive, but Joseph wants to know. And so he said, bring back the youngest brother and I'll release Simeon. And so that's where we find ourselves in Genesis 43, the second journey to Egypt. They they are going to go back. They have to convince their father, Jacob, that this is the right thing. And so what does he do? He loads them up. He says, okay, we'll do this. You can take Benjamin back with you. But what what you're going to do is you're going to sweeten the deal. And so he has them load not just the silver that was in their sacks when they came back from Egypt, but he has them double the amount. So he has the, they have the old silver that they came back from Egypt with, and now they have the new amount with which to purchase new grain. So we have double the amount of silver. He loads them with nuts and grapes and figs and any sort of a peace offering that he can load them up with to take back to Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh's second in command, which just happens to be Joseph. And so that's the plan. You're going to sweeten the deal. You'll take the money back and you'll take Benjamin. And, you know, we just hope that everything goes well. So, of course, they go back. They meet up with Joseph. Joseph gives instructions to his men. And what they are supposed to do is they are to load up the grain and to put all that on there. Then they... um, 
they're to take his silver cup, uh, his cup, and they're to put it in Benjamin's sack. And then they're going to depart and they're going to go off. And Joseph tells his men, when they get down the road, I want you to go down there and I want you to confront them about stealing my cup. And so that's what happens. And of course, the men get there and they they catch the brothers and they say, how dirty and rotten you are to have stolen um, Joseph's cup. And so they have this interaction and, of course, they're um, insistent, know that they haven't. And if one of us did, why his life is yours. So they let their sacks down, they open them up. And what do you know? Young Benjamin has the cup. This is a big test. This is, this is Joseph pushing the envelope. Where are these brothers? What are they all about? Who are they? They go back. They bring them back to Joseph. We pick up the story in chapter 44, verse 18, and this is what I want us to read together. Genesis 44, verse 18, Then Judah went up and said to him, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked the servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. And then, he, and then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. And we went back to your servant, my father. We told him what my Lord had said. And then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we can't go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my life, my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. Verse 30, So now... If the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that his boy is not there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Verse 33, now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. After all that had happened, After the testing, after the trials, the sin, the mistakes, the cover-up, the deceit, here is where we are. Judah, in the midst of all of this, 
has stepped forward as a leader. Now, you remember where Judah's been. You remember some of his tricks, some of his deceit, some of his the ugly things that Judah himself did. And now here is Judah. Benjamin's life on the line. Judah steps forward and he gives an account very moving. It's often thought of as one of the great speeches of Scripture. And Judah steps forward. And what he says is so important. It's really monumental. In verse 33, he says that he is willing to stand in place of his brother. Essentially what Judah says is, my Lord, my life instead of Benjamin's life. Take me as your slave instead of Benjamin. Wow. Now think of that. Think of where he's come. Just years prior, Judah and the other brothers are selling their brother into slavery. And now, Judah is offering his life for Benjamin's life. Judah steps in and says, me, take me. This is what causes Joseph to break down. If you look back down at your Bible, the start of Chapter 45, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him. This is the pivotal moment of the story. This is where it all turns. Because Joseph has seen, he, he sees Judah, he sees his heart. He sees that the brothers are not willing to leave him for silver, and they're not willing to leave him for grain. They're not willing to save their own necks and give up Benjamin or Simeon. And Joseph is saying to himself, they're different. Their hearts have changed What happened with me? They're no longer willing to go down that road and he's seen enough. And what he has seen is that Judah is willing to offer his life for Benjamin's life. He said, well, Judah doesn't really say that. What he says is I'll become a slave. And he said, yeah, he will give up his life. We've already talked about what the prisons looked like in this place. And so he's essentially saying my life for Benjamin's life. You all know what Jesus says in John fifteen thirteen. There is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for what? His brother. You think he chose that purposefully? Here is Judah prepared to give his life for Benjamin's life. And it's the final straw. They've passed the test. That's the first point that I want you to see here as we think about how it is that God will provide. God will provide, even though it means the life of another. Even though it's difficult, even though it's painful, He provides. 
we often think, you know, God's going to provide and it, it will be the, it'll be clean. It'll be easy. It, it'll be a way that's a win-win for me and for everybody around me. And, 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 uh, you know, if God loves me, if I'm really his son, then this is all going to work out. And sometimes it's a dull knife. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's painful. Listen, more often than not, it's difficult. And more often than not, it's painful. And here's the question. Are, when it's difficult and when it's painful, are you willing to say God is good? Or is God only good when it is a sunny day? See, that's the message of Scripture. Judah was going to offer himself. Remember, one of the things that we've often said is that forgiveness always what? Costs. It's always expensive. Someone always absorbs the loss when there's real forgiveness. It doesn't come free and it isn't cheap. But here's the second part that I want you to see. And that is right here, as we work our way into chapter 45, there is an amazing theology lesson. Amazing theology lesson that Joseph gives, beginning in verse 4. He reveals himself to his brothers, and then he says this, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, and you can almost, you can almost like, he's going to whisper now. I'm going to tell you something significant. I am your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Listen, tremendous angst in the brothers' hearts, okay? I mean, can you imagine all the years that have gone by and you you believe that he's He's probably dead. He's, he's probably gone. You have no idea, but you don't, you can't possibly imagine that the man you're standing before is the number two in Egypt is your brother. And when he tells them, I am your brother, Joseph, the one sold into Egypt, the constriction in their hearts must have been significant. And then he says, don't be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Why? And here's the theology lesson. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 6, for two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. Verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Did you hear that? Who sold Joseph into slavery? His brothers. By God's design. How was God going to save his people? How was God going to save Jacob and his sons? How was God going to protect that thread, that line that would ultimately produce a Savior way down thousand years from now? How was he going to do that? 
he was going to have Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, which would last years, which would cause him great pain, great heartache, great distress. You want to talk about a dull knife? That's a dull knife. Joseph didn't know half of the time if, if he would live, if he would survive the ordeal of prison, let alone to, to come out the other side and to be Pharaoh's number two. But that's how God works. That's the story here. How will God provide? God will sell Joseph into slavery. The travail, the heartache of his father Jacob, of his brothers years later, having done this dastardly deed. And yet, Joseph looks at it all, he looks at his brothers and he says, you didn't do this. God did. Wow. That's a theology lesson. That's God's sovereignty. That's God is in control. He's got this even though it's bleak, even though it's ugly, even though it's messy, even though it isn't timely. That's the message of Scripture, that God is in control of this. And, of course, we see it again many, many years later when Peter announces Listen, you are the ones that handed Jesus over to be crucified. You are the ones that did all of this. And yet, it was by God's plan. It was by God's design. Acts chapter 2. And the painful offering of Jesus as our sacrifice, the exact same thread reappears. And we have to scratch our heads and say, how, how does it work? How is it? That both God can ordain these things, and yet you and I are responsible? I don't know. I wish I could clear that all up for every single one of us, because it is a big question for us. How is God sovereign and yet man responsible? I don't know. But here's what I do know. Right here in this very passage, you see both of them. Verse 4 I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And yet, God sent me ahead of you. You did it, and God did it. And somehow those two all worked their way out in our lives. And they don't just work their way out in our lives. They work their way out for our salvation. In God's difficult providence, He provided His Son, the Lamb of God, given to take away the sin of the world. In your stead, in my stead, was He handed over? Yes. Was it by God's design and plan? Yes. And that's how we end up this morning at the supper. Because God provided. He provided a way for us. Through great difficulty, through great travail, his son offered himself as a sacrifice in our place so that we would have an opportunity to come before him. This morning we have the table that has been set before us, and it is a beautiful table. And I, I want to provide an invitation for you. If you're here this morning, 
You know the Lord Jesus. You've confessed Him as your Lord and Savior. You've been baptized. This supper's for you. This is not our table. It's not our supper. It's the Lord's table. It's the Lord's supper. And so the invitation is to all of you who have made a profession of faith in Christ. Come to the table. If you're here this morning, you've not made a public profession of faith, my invitation to you is to let the supper pass you by. Come visit with me. Let me Give me an opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus with you. He freely offers forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy. And I'd like to share that with you, and I'd like to have the opportunity to do it. So if you're here this morning and you've not made that public profession, let the supper pass you by. That's, that's the encouragement that, that we read from the Word. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man ought to examine himself. And so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So if you're here, the invitation is for you as you've professed the Lord. Come and eat. This is a visible picture. We talk about it as a sign and seal of the work that God has done in your life. We've heard the gospel, the good news, right here in the book of Genesis. Now we get to see the good news that Jesus offered himself, his body, as a living sacrifice for us, giving himself up to make the way clear for us and our salvation. So come and eat this morning.